So great to be in God's house as always. We'll take your Bible, please. Turn it to the book of Ephesians. And we're going through a series right now, right through this book. And we're entitling this series, Beloved Identity. Beloved Identity, realizing who God says you are and living in the hope, the riches, and the power that he has for you. One of the things um, that I love about faith in Jesus Christ, being a Christian, being a follower of the way, is that we know some things and we understand things in life that we didn't have answers to before we knew Jesus Christ. And in life, we face problems. And with those problems come pain. And we're no strangers, strangers to that. I was talking to a few people in our church just last night and this morning. A lot of us have gone through a lot. And even if it doesn't look like or feel like uh, someone else is going through any pain or problems, the truth of the matter is we all do face trials and storms and tribulations. And in God's word, we have the reason why we face pain and problems. And God doesn't even just stop there. He doesn't just tell us why there's pain and there's problems and life is really hard. He also gives us the solution and the hope and the answer to get out of that pain and that sorrow that we face. So we're going to see the pain today as we start this passage. We're going to move into the problem. Then we're going to move from the problem to the physician. And then from the physician to the power to remedy that. It's all here in Ephesians 2. And this is going to be a sermon that uh, doesn't just brushes over the problems. This is going to be a sermon that really dives in deep and we analyze it, okay? It's like you could take an ibuprofen if you have a headache, and that, what is that ibuprofen going to do? It's going to, it's going to mask the real problem. It's going to cover it up. And really, the, the, the true problem is something different. The ibuprofen isn't solving that. Maybe you need your back and your spine realigned. Maybe, maybe you need to get some more sleep. There's a lot of things that could be going on as the source of that problem. And we have to find the real problem. Too many times we experience pain and we think the problem is our boss. We think the problem is our kid. We think the problem is I don't make enough money. I think the problem is I'm not attractive enough. I think the problem is I don't have the right friends. We think of all these things that are a result of the root of the problem. And what we're going to see today is the symptoms of the, those are symptoms of the problem. And underneath it all, underneath those doubts and those fears and the identity crisis that so many of us face is this bigger problem. So let's look at Ephesians 2. Today we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, let's start there in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." As we look through this today, we're going to see that we have to put the past in the past, and we have to move forward with love. That's the main point of this passage. And the first 
point and the first truth that I want you all to see is this. You have to bury your deadness in the past. Bury your deadness in the past. There's so much to unpack here. So let's back up because I'm sure some of you are probably like, well, David, I just thought you said you were going to go into the source and the problem of pain. And this is just describing a lost person. So David, what gives? I know I told you we have to break it down because it is a deeper, deeper thought here today. But this passage is telling us that anyone and everyone apart from Christ is dead spiritually. If you are not in Christ, this is you. And I know that's a sobering thought. I know that's, that's an intense thought. And I don't say that lightly. I say that because it's the truth of God's word here. If you're not in Christ, if you don't have the beloved identity to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, spiritually speaking, you are dead. You have no life spiritually. We've spent the last two weeks focusing on the incredible hope, riches, and power that embodies everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at a belo our beloved identity. We've barely scratched the surface of the depths of that. But today, before it gets good, it's going to get dark. As you look at these first three verses, there's not a lot of bright, shiny spots in these first three verses. And to quote someone who you may know, Harvey Dent, uh, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And that's what I think of when I read these first three verses. It's really, really dark. For you to actually appreciate the beauty that is in the rest of these verses and for you to truly embrace your beloved identity, you have to understand where you came from. You have to get, this is how it begins. And for those of you who aren't in Christ, you have to realize this is who you are apart from God. And these aren't my words. These are the words of God. So here's another loaded question. Have you ever seen a corpse? I know that can bring some emotions, obviously. And it's an intense question in and of itself. But if you've ever seen or felt a corpse... There's three facts about it. It's cold, it's hard, and it's utterly unresponsive. Those are just the facts. Cold, hard, and unresponsive. That is the way a person is spiritually, in the spiritual realm, in their soul, without life in Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we don't cry out for a lifeline. We aren't like seeking after God. We aren't just trying to be a great person so that we can love others with pure motives. Motives. That's not the reality. It's the opposite. It's we have ears that don't hear. We are stiff-necked and we don't care about the things of God. That's what we just read in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 2 again. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of your flesh. That's verse 3. Have you ever noticed that when there is a tragedy, when there is perhaps a mass shooting, 
Everyone knows that's broken, that's messed up, this is horrific, and people try to pinpoint the problem, right? Um, there's, there's three like general categories that people will fall to when they're trying to lay blame and identify the problem. The first is external influences. The system just failed that kid, okay? Um, Maybe the parents did a horrible job. Maybe there was no dad in the home. But this is a common one. We go to the external influences around this person messed them up. Another angle people will take, it's not as common, but it is out there, is this is because of evil. Okay, there's demonic forces in the world. There's evilness that's in our culture, in movies, in violence, in video games. And like, there's evilness that is the cause of this. And then the third approach is it's on the individual. Look, guns don't kill people. People kill people, right? And, and we talk about it's the person. It's, it's that individual who made the choice and messed up, and they're the ones who pulled the trigger. So who's right? Out of those three, who's right? Well, the truth is they're all right. Because look at this, in the word of God, we can see all three of those. External influences following the course of this world. Pure evil following the prince of the power of the air. That's another name for Satan himself. We live in the passions of our flesh apart from Christ. That is the individual. This is why we face so much darkness and pain and problems in the world. It's because of this. It's because of sin. S-I-N, and it's not just a churchy word. This is something that we all have to realize and we have to understand. The world system has always been a force. And when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about this, most of the time, it's talking about this spirit of the Antichrist that has always been present. It's I will do it my way. It was, it's live your life. It's YOLO, you only live once. This, this whole mantra that just says, I want what I want, I'm going to get what I need, I don't really care about what God says I should do with my life, I want to live it and do it my way. That's the spirit of this world. The prince of the power of the air. Yeah, that's another name for Satan, and he is real. I know, I know some of you are like, whoa, 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 David, like, Satan, really? Like... Are you telling me that my grandma, who never heard a fly, who didn't believe in Jesus, is being influenced by Satan? Again, I'm not telling you that that's what Paul is telling the Ephesians, right? And that word there, that word that works in, that you see in the text, that is, that is where we get our English word energy. And it literally means Satan and the demonic forces are energizing. They are, they are giving energy to people who are lost, people who don't know Jesus Christ. And I don't want to freak you out or anything. I mean, this is real. This is real stuff. I mean, to quote Kaiser Sose, the greatest trick the, ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Okay? You don't have to have a Ouija board out. You don't have to be practicing dark magic. Those are the only times that Satan is out there. He's out there at all times. And the demons are real, okay? We, there is a spirit, there's spiritual forces 
We're in a spiritual realm that we don't always see. And you ever wonder, well, why don't we see demonic oppression anymore like you do in other, other countries? It's because in the West, we live in a scientific society that we embrace reason and we elevate reason, right? So if Satan just presented himself all the time with demonic uh, oppression and possession, it would open people's eyes to the spiritual realm. And he doesn't want that. He wants us to stay asleep. He wants us to forget that he's around. But he is around. And he is very active. We have to wake up. Paul told the Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he has always, from the very beginning, he has studied mankind since Adam and Eve. And he knows what makes us tick. And he knows how to tempt us and how to distract us. And he will always sprinkle in a kernel of truth and mix it in with error and lead people astray. He's brilliant in that way. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's literally saying Satan energizes the lost. Satan is real and he hates us. And you know what? It doesn't have to be just evil, pure evil either. He can tempt us with things that are good and he can put them out of place. He can take something that's good and elevate it over God's plan for you and it becomes one of his greatest strategies. It's not just porn. It could be something good like a podcast. It's not just cocaine. It could be cookies. It's not just intoxication. It could be Instagram. Not just nightclubs. It could be Netflix. This is the way he attacks us. Living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of evil, children of wrath. This is dark, but this is the reality. This is the world, the flesh that we battle in our own hearts and the devil. Do you see how deep-rooted and multifaceted this problem is? It's not fun out there. It's not easy out there, and this is why. Because of sin. The reason we feel pain is because apart from Christ, we are broken. We are fallen from what we were created to be. And without Christ, your identity has a gaping hole. It has a gaping hole that you can fill with hobbies, with addictions, you can feel a lot of things to relieve the pain, but short of the glory of eternity that's in your heart, you're going to feel a void. And I told you this was heavy today, but the problem is sin. The problem is sin. Paul is writing to a church, though, the church at Ephesus. And these are people who came out of the darkness. If you remember our very opening sermon in this series, we talked about how the dark magic was in the city of Ephesus with a temple to Diana. These are the same people who, when they came to Christ, many of them burned their magic books that were thousands and thousands of dollars worth. These people know what that's like. They know Satan is real. They know the external influences of this world bear down on them. They know their own flesh. But how is Paul talking to them? He's talking to them in past tense. You were dead. This is the way you were. It's no longer that way, though. 
The night is darkest just before the dawn, but I promise you, dawn is coming. There is actually hope. If this is where we just ended it right here, this would be the most depressing sermon I've ever preached, the most depressing sermon you've ever heard. But thankfully, this is not where it ends. People who don't know Jesus, in reality, why are they so bitter? Why are they so angry? Why are they so depressed? Because they don't have the true living hope. It, 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 in, in reality, they can mask it all they want. They can pop all those ibuprofen. But really, at the heart, there, there's, there's a void and there's emptiness, right? Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't end right here. Look at verse 4. There's two words that change everything. But God. But God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were hopeless. You were a corpse. You were lifeless. You had really nothing to speak of spiritually. You weren't looking for God. You don't understand real love. All of that. The darkest of the dark, and it's as heavy as it gets, and it's super depressing. But God. But God. Look at verse 4. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the second point. Awake to the grace of God. Yes, bury your deadness in the past. You have to do that. But how do you do that? Well, the first step right here is to awake to the grace of God. I usually make all of my points action verbs. I do that on purpose for a reason because I want you to walk away with like, what can I do? What can I take home with me? So I'll explain the text, apply the text, and then you know illustrate the text. But I specifically chose the most passive verb I could possibly think of for this point. And I did that on purpose because this is the truth of what this text is saying. It's saying dead people don't come alive. Dead people don't walk. Dead people don't do anything. They're dead. God is the one who gives you life. God is the one who saves you. All you do is awake. And I mean, somebody else can wake you up. Maybe your body wakes you up, but you can't willfully wake yourself up. You can't. It's impossible to do. Coming to life in Christ, having spiritual life, requires God to work. And it's a gift by grace through faith, and we can't do it ourselves. Do you remember the difference between grace and mercy? We talk about this a lot. Um, two, two very churchy words that are beautiful, that are rich, that are dense, and that have so much hope for us. Mercy pities, grace pardons. But the biggest thing I want you to remember is grace is when God gives you something that you don't deserve. Mercy is when God withholds something from you that you actually do deserve. So we actually do deserve judgment for our sin. For turning our backs to God, for going our way, that deserves judgment. God, is in his mercy, chooses not to give us what we deserve. 
And then furthermore, on top of that, God gives us something that we never even deserved. And that's the grace of God giving us salvation. He made us alive together with Christ. And he seated us with him. And is such a gospel word. He saved us and he seated us. Grace and mercy, love and hope. This is your identity. This is your beloved identity. And we can never hear this enough. I know we've been talking about this for three weeks. But you know what? If you're getting tired of hearing about the grace and the mercy of God that defines your beloved identity, I dare say if you're tired of hearing that, that should be a red flag. It really should. Because this is our hope. This is what we have to cling to in those dark times, in the pain, when we're facing people who are jerks, when other people around us are just blowing it, when we, in our own flesh, continually fall and trip up and do the same thing that we try not to do. When we are down, we have to look to the grace and the mercy of God and embrace our beloved identity. If that doesn't get your blood pumping, either you're spiritually dead or you're spiritually in a coma. It's one of those two, and those are both really bad places to be. Embrace your identity. Realize who you are in Christ. Here, this truth, though, this truth that you have to awake, that you don't do it yourself, this rubs religious people the wrong way. It really does. And the reason this rubs so many of us the wrong way is because we live in a culture that is all about performance, a performance-based culture. What have you done for me lately? How are you going to perform? How are you going to do what you need to do to get to the top? That's America, right? That's corporate capitalism 101. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but spiritually speaking, that's a problem. Every person is judged by how hard you work. I mean, if you're a football player, you're judged by how you perform in the field. If you want a good salary, well, you better have the skills and the degree required for that. If, you're, if you want to be a popular artist, you have to turn heads. You have to get some hype generated. All those things are based off of what you do. In your beloved identity, it, it's not about what you do. It's about what God did for you. And that's how it all begins. And that's how it all starts. And that's how we get motivated. And that's how we get inspired. And that's how, where we find the source of the power. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us. I just finished listening to a podcast this week called 1619. And this is a really interesting podcast. It was short. But it went into the history of slavery in America. And in the tone of a serious sermon that has some heaviness, this was definitely a rough, hard listen, but it was fascinatingly interesting. Going into like how the first slaves came into our country in 1619, before we were even the United States of America. And they traced all of that, and they, and they showed how that still has effects today. Well, as I was thinking about that, slavery in America and the history that we have there, that dark history, I got thinking of a man named John Newton. 
And many of you may know this already, but John Newton is the man who wrote the hymn that we've all heard, Amazing Grace. John Newton, before he came to Christ, was a slave trader. He, was, he, he lived in London. Um, he grew up in a Christian home. His mom prayed over him. His mom sang to him. He rejected the way of Christ. And as a young teenager, he boarded a ship. Um, that, sh- that job didn't go exactly the way he wanted it to go. So he tried to get off that ship and abandon ship and just flee. He got caught by the captain. The captain didn't appreciate that. He bartered his way and somehow talked his way into not getting punished and sent home, but actually to go work on another ship, which happened to be a slave, a slave tr- trader ship. And that captain abused him, was incredibly wicked. And the same things that John Newton saw in that man started coming out in his own life. And one thing led to the next. He became a slave trader when he became a full-grown adult. He was the worst of the worst. When you talk about saved a wretch like me, this guy was a wretch. There's a, he admits that at one point he threw a woman's baby overboard. He abused women. This guy was the scum of the earth, the kind of person that would be almost impossible to love. But when he was an adult on a slave trip, a slave ship, he experienced an intense storm. He remembered the love that his mother had, a love that he couldn't even understand. And he cried out to God to save him. His life didn't change overnight. He still wrestled with the flesh. And as a matter of fact, even after being a Christian, he stayed on that slave ship as a slave trader for a few more years, but eventually the Holy Spirit worked in his life, convicted him that what he was doing was wicked, and he got out of that lucrative business, and he went back home to London. The way God works, and that blows our minds every single time, this wicked man started changing. John Newton became a pastor. And in 1779, as he pastored a church in London, there was a young man in his church who was brilliant, um, on his way up, that took a liking to John Newton, that asked John Newton for advice. And John Newton spiritually counseled and discipled a young man. This guy went to John Newton and said, hey, I feel like I should maybe go into the ministry. John Newton told this man, no, you don't need to do that. As a matter of fact, you should just stay and serve God where you're at right now. This young man was in Parliament, and his name was William Wilberforce. That that conversation happened in 1779. And in 1807, William Wilberforce was the man who led the charge to legally abolish slavery in England. Isn't that amazing how God works? God took this wicked person, John Newton, God, who was spiritually dead. God saved him. God changed him. Then God used him to impact the life of William Wilberforce, who then abolished slavery in England. That is the God that we serve. And I mean, when you read Ephesians 2 and you see how dark and hopeless we are apart from Christ, slavery makes more sense, the wickedness of slavery. 
And when you read the rest of Ephesians 2, when you see that but God being rich in mercy, that's when it starts to connect. Wow, God can save anyone. God could save the worst of the worst, John Newton. God can use people like that to abolish the wickedness of this world through other people. Because what we do in our life impacts other people. We have to remember that as a church. And he will do the same for you. Awake to the grace of God. Verses 7 through 10 give us one more truth about leaving the past in the past and moving forward with love. And this is where we get an action point, finally. All right? So verse 7, look at that with me. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves you by the grace of God for what? So that we could be better than everyone else? So that we could feel good about ourselves? So that we could just not go to hell when we die? Of course not. None of those reasons. What does the text say? God saved us for good works. Good works are in the Bible. (laughs) We aren't saved by good works. Of course not. You are only saved when you say, God, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you. God, will you please forgive me? I repent of my sin and I'm turning to you. I believe that you came to this earth for me. I believe that you died on this cross of torturous death for me. God, I believe that you rose again to newness of life. I believe by faith that you love me. Will you please save me? That's salvation. That's a lost prayer. You can pray that prayer right now. You can ask God to save you. But God is the one who saves. It's not because of any good work that you or I could do. We only boast in Christ. He created us as his workmanship for good works. That's verse 9. No one has ever entered heaven and people just started applauding them. She made it. She was so great. She gave so much money to the church. She did so many wonderful things for other people. They're never going to applaud that person. They're applauding the fact, and people are rejoicing in the fact, that God is the one who came after the lost sheep. He left the 99, and he went after the lost. We are going to be celebrating. The angels are going to be rejoicing for every sinner that turns and repents to God the Father. We can't live for the applause. We have to live in the applause. The applause is God saved you. He gave you a beloved identity. Now you are his child. Now you were called. You were redeemed. You were forgiven. You were made new. You have a reason and a hope and a purpose in your life that's bigger than what your life was before. That's what we're applauding. 
Don't live for God's smile. You already have it. Live in his smile. That's your beloved identity. You have this identity. You were saved to bring glory to God, to show his attributes in this world, and that's what you do those good works for. Verse 10 says, a plan beforehand. This came out of love. In our love, our good works have to be a response and a reaction to the love that we see from God. We love because he first loved us. You can't get that backwards. You can't get that out, out of order because if you do, you're going to work hard. You're going to clench your fist. You're going to grit your teeth. You're going to get burned out. You're going to get stressed out. It starts with my beloved identity is something that God did for me. And I can, I can rest in that and I can find my hope and my, my joy and my power in that. That's the element of your beloved identity. Who do you love then? Who do you love? Whoever's in front of you. It's a simple answer. Who is your neighbor? Everyone that's around you. That annoying coworker, that kid in your class who tries to look on your notes and, and doesn't use deodorant. Like, I mean, all these unlovely people out there, right? Those John Newtons in the world, those are the people that we should be loving. And you know what? You never know who the next William Wilberforce is going to be. You have, we have no idea the impact that we're making in other people, the little kids that are in our church, um, the people that are out there today playing basketball, you name it. You have no idea what God can do through your life when you start loving people. It's really that simple. It's really that glorious. That's our beloved identity. Walk in Christ for good works. This is the third point. Walk in Christ for good works. Let me show you a couple passages because I said, yeah, good works don't save you, but they're all over the Bible. This is why people get confused. It's everywhere in Scripture, but it's a reaction to our beloved identity, to what God has done for us. Matthew 5, 16. What does Matthew 5, 16 say? In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Titus 2, 7. I mean, we could sit here all day and quote verses about good works. But Titus 2.7, what does Titus 2.7 say? Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is such an important verse because this verse is saying that, look, you're following Jesus other people may not like that. But if you are loving them and you're in the community and you're reaching out to them and doing good things, they're not going to have anything to criticize. Because they see, well, wait, yeah, they may not have the same beliefs as me and maybe their belief system is different and they have different opinions about some very important things that I hold true. I can see their heart. And their heart is full of love and compassion. This is so important as a church we get this. This is why in our life groups, we have a five-week rotation cycle. In one of those five weeks, 
our life groups say we're going to get in the community and we're going to do something to show people Jesus' love. It's so important that we do this. Some of us are saying, all right, well, God, just tell me. What can I do? What's next? Just show me, God. It's right in front of you. Just start moving. It's really hard to steer a parked car, right? The only one who can really move a parked car is God. And that was us when we were dead in our sin. But we just kick it in gear. I mean, you can even kick it in neutral and God will start shoving it. Just start moving and you will see people that need love. We are his workmanship. He is the potter and we are the clay. Michelangelo sculpted the statue David in the early 1500s. It's beautiful. You can see it today in Florence, Italy. And as a matter of fact, people still to this day line up every day and they stand in line on average two and a half hours to look at the statue David. So it's a, an amazing piece of art. We've talked about this many times. As humans who are made in God's image, made in the image of God, we are living, breathing statues of who God is. This is the crazy hypothetical, but stick with me on this, all right? What if the statue David could think and could talk like we're living, breathing statues that have a soul that can think and talk? But what if that statue said, look at me, I'm... I'm so amazing. Just look at, look at me. All these people are lining up to see me. I am something else. If the statue could say that, I know this is bizarre, but we'd be like, whoa, you know, you are amazing, but you're only amazing because the master took his hands to you and made you beautiful. And then in the other sense, what if that statue was thinking, oh, I'm just a looked over, overlooked, rock, I was shapeless, I was nothing, I'm worthless. You'd be like, uh, look, you were an unformed rock, but then the master took his hands to you and made you his workmanship and formed you, and now you're something beautiful. Do you see how your beloved identity combats both pride and it gives us humility at the same time. Gives us humility, gives us hope, gives us confidence. We have courage because we are who God says we are. And we can move forward with love and we can bury our deadness in the past. It doesn't define us anymore. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus are accepted in the beloved. We don't need to think the way the world thinks. We don't need to be entrapped and enslaved to our own fleshly passions. We need to give them over to God. Run after Jesus. Embrace your identity in Christ. And live for him, through him, for him, for good works. Let's stand up.